Well, good day, Fellowship family. Happy Father's Day. It's great to celebrate this wonderful day with you. Last two weeks, I've been in Israel and uh, had a wonderful time. We took 45 FBCers over there, had a great time. Two weeks ago, we baptized 26 in the Jordan River. It was an awesome time. We even dressed up in robes for it. Funny thing was, is um, two of my sons didn't receive their luggage at all for the entire trip. And so Jax uh, and Nathan didn't get their luggage. And so James, my oldest son, is the same size as Nathan, my youngest son. And I'm the same size as my middle son. And so Jack, for 12 days, looked like a 51-year-old man. Well, we had an awesome time. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, go. It's a, the Bible really just comes to life. Uh, we're actually going to go again next year at that same time, right the day after Memorial Day through like June 9th. And we'll hold an informational meeting on it later in July for anyone who's interested. But it's been really great to be back with you. I uh, absolutely loved what uh, our... Uh, Bill and David did in their preaching while I was gone, and it helps me relax knowing that we're in good hands as any one of our pastors can get up here and preach the Word of God. And so we're blessed. We really are. It's great to be back with you. I want to talk to you on this Father's Day about having a desire for our Heavenly Father. What does it look like to love Him with the first and the best of everything that we are? And it takes me to a passage that John writes in 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. He says this, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, look at this, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God ab- abides forever. You know, you've heard it said here many times that the direction, every direction we choose for our lives leads to a logical destination. And sometimes when we get to the end of that destination, we go, wow, I never wanted to be here. Why am I here? We just have to kind of go and rewind a little bit and think about those decisions we've made that headed down a direction that lead to a logical destination. But really what's fueling those, that direction is our desires, And so if we can talk about our desires and if we can be intentional about what do we feed the desires of our lives with, we might be able to head down a better direction that leads to a best, God's best destination for us. Well, the story of Esther in the the Old Testament is a story about desires in conflict. And I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Esther. It's a smaller book. Uh, but it happens at a key time in the history of Israel. The events of Esther happened between two kind of defining moments. One was when the temple was rebuilt in 516 BC and when the walls were rebuilt in 445 BC. Now, one of the things that was interesting is that in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Jerusalem, conquered it, carted off everyone in the city and around the city, and took them up to Babylon, and they were in the Babylonian captivity. Daniel prophesied very specifically that not only would this happen, but that in in 70 years after 586, they would return. This remnant would return, and that's exactly what happened in 516, led by Ezra 
a leader at that time, he rebuilt the temple. Why he built the temple first and not the walls of the city? Because God called them to worship him first and then be secure in their city. And God wants the first and the best of us. He desires us to worship him and to love him with all of ourselves. And then you may have heard of Nehemiah. It's also a book in the Bible. Nehemiah returned in 445 BC to rebuild the wall. So right in the middle of those two are the events of Esther. Now the Babylonian captivity, that the Babylonian empire was defeated. It was defeated by the Medes and the Persians. And one of the leaders at that time was Xerxes. He's known in the scriptures as King, uh, as King Ahasuerus. And I'm going to call him Xerxes because he's easier to pronounce like that, okay? But uh, his kingdom was really centered in the city uh, of a vast kingdom. This vast kingdom, just take a look at it on the screen. It starts in present-day Greece and it goes all the way to northern India. It's a thousands of miles of, of rain and it reached down through not what's now present-day Israel into northern Egypt. I mean, they had the world. They were the dominant superpower of the world at that time. Their, one of their capital cities was the capital of Susa. Right now it's in, located in modern day Iran and it's very difficult to visit there, but the ruins remain. Here's an artist's rendering of the palace of King Xerxes and the city of Susa at the time of the book of Esther. And inter- interesting, what archaeology has shown us, is they came up with the relief of this king, King Xerxes. Now, if you look really close on that relief, his face is all pocked out. So we don't know what he looked like, but we know that he existed. So the Bible's reliable. It's not just a story. This is history. These events happened with a real people at, a, at real places. And so uh, this King Xerxes, what can we know about him? Well, the book of Esther just starts us off. We go from zero to 100 real quickly. And one word that describes him is pleasure. This guy desired for pleasure. So much so that his alarm clock every morning would wake him up to celebrate good times. Come on. (laughs) Not really. Not really. But he partied. He had a 180-day party. That's six months to you and me. And then at the end of that party, he had a huge party for seven days. And everything came unleashed. This is like spring break gone bad. And uh, in verse 8 of chapter 1, it says the drinking was according to this edict. In other words, it was legislated. There is no compulsion, for the king has given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desires, which is the recipe for destruction. I don't know if you've ever gone to a wedding with an open bar. I'm talking about full open, but it usually doesn't end in a good way. High bills, drunk people. And that's exactly what happened in this kingdom. King Xerxes was all about pleasure. And at the end of this seven-day party, he has, uh, he has a thought. Let's bring on the women, he says. Because pleasure and women with a man of pleasure, is a very big deal. And so he asked for Queen to come and dance, an erotic dance before him. And her name was Queen Vashti. And she said, quite simply, no, not tonight. I've got a headache. Now that's my paraphrase. That's my paraphrase. 
But when your desire is for pleasure, the last thing you want to hear is no, not tonight. Pleasure and patience don't go together. Pleasure likes instant gratification. Pleasure doesn't like to wait. And what happened was that the, the king came unglued. He said, what should we do with a woman like this? Now, it didn't help that he was drunk at the time. What should we do? And all his drunk friends said, she shouldn't be queen anymore. We know that. But this isn't just the queen and you. This is the whole empire. I mean, if all women in this empire say no to their husbands, the society will crumble. So here's what we must do. We must legislate. And that's what we do when it doesn't work in our home. We go on a political platform with it, right? And that's what they did. And they set out a decree that no woman should ever say no to her husband. Look at how it says in the scripture, verse 20. The decree was made by the king and it proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Folks, it never works. It never works. Women, as long as I've known women, they have not said you, they don't respond to you have to, you're gonna submit. It just doesn't work in cultivating love. It just doesn't. And so it didn't work in that day. Queen Vashti continued to say no. So she loses her throne. She's vanished from the kingdom and the king sobers up and he realized I have no wife anymore. So he asks his young counselors at the time, what do I do since I no longer have a queen? Well, pleasure has a resume for a queen. And his young counselors said this. In verse 2, it says, the king young men, king's young men who attended him said, let, look at this, beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Beautiful, pleasing to the eye, pleasure. Young, no one else has had them. Virgins, I can have them. By the way, just to be honest, this is the same resume for human trafficking in the world today. Because pleasure has no restraint. And pleasure reduces people down to objects for your benefit and ignores them how God has created them in his image with dignity, significance, worth. Pleasure can be destructive. And so that's what happens. He puts out the decree. Find these women. Bring them in. So um, this this plan was that they would look throughout the kingdom far and wide. And whoever would please the king the most would become the new queen. Twelve months. Six months of spices. Six months of perfumes. And they would be beautified and then brought before the king. The second scene of the story, we meet another man. His name is Mordecai. He was part of that Babylonian captivity that was taken out of Jerusalem and planted into Babylon and then became the Medes and the Persians. And he was living in this capital of Susa. And it says of him that he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. 
It's a different picture than we get with Xerxes. Mordecai has, is a man of care and concern and, and compassion. He sees his young cousin without a mother or father. And because he was older and maybe had the royal uh, connection, he could take her in his household and treat her just like a daughter. He loved her. Just so happened that the king's men came a-looking. And they saw her, she was pleasing to them, and she swept up into this Persian idol competition. And she's brought and beautified before the king. It's interesting that that Mordecai was someone who was always at the gates and uh, would always keep his eye out for his cousin. But when the king saw Esther, he was very pleased with her. And she had that six months of preparation, and tw- actually 12 months of, separ- uh, of preparation. And she her, choosed her own, uh, chose her own costume. She made it through the prelims, the king's private rooms. And then the semifinals, his second harem, where all his wives lived. And then his personal coach kind of coached her to make it to the finals. And finally, the king loves her more than any other of the young women. He sets the royal crown upon her head. He celebrates with what a person of pleasure does, a party. He parties with her and declares her a public holiday. And the highest place of a woman held in this vast kingdom is held by Esther. Mordecai would go daily to check on her at the gates. And one of those days, he noticed something suspicious. Two of the king's inner court were planning on assassinating King Xerxes. Mordecai saw it. He had a, had a connection with, with Esther and said, tell, tell him, th- these two guys, they're going to get it. They're going to they're gonna assassinate the king. The king catches the guys, and here's the PG-13 part of them, impales them on a long stick with a really pointy end and holds them up. This is what happens to those who try to assassinate the king. The king's scribes go, we got to write this down. So they write it down in a book. And it was the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Why don't you remember this? Because we're going to come back to that book at a heated point in this story. Chapter 3 begins with another scene of yet another man. His name is Haman. And I think his parents just like to go, hey, man. And that's his name. (laughs) Actually, Haman in Hebrew literally means noisy. Noisy one. So if you have a noisy one, you know what we're talking about. His mom probably, he probably cried a lot as a kid. But he is one of uh, Xerxes' officials. He was the most powerful official in the land. And he walked, when he walked by, he demanded people to tremble and bow down to him. This was a man bent on getting respect. And as he walked and everyone bowed, one person refused to bow. His name, Mordecai. And because he was at the gates every day, he stood out because he stood up when Haman walked by. And Haman hated him. Look what it says. It says, Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him. Haman was filled with fury. When you're bent on getting respect and someone doesn't respect you, someone doesn't bend to you, look out. Anger, rage. And uh, Haman realized this guy is a Jew. And so he didn't just take it out on Mordecai that he wanted to kill him. He sought, verse 6, that he sought to destroy all the Jews. Where have we seen this before? 
The Jews are the problem. If we got rid of them, our culture would be better. Yeah, we're much too sophisticated in the 20, 21st century to ever think of a final solution like this. Are we? Or has history repeated itself? And that is exactly what he planned. And he set out to get legislation before King Xerxes. And he said to King Xerxes, he said, hey, there's a certain race of people in your kingdom who are scattered, scattered throughout your empire. And they keep themselves separate, separate from everyone else. They practice laws that are different than ours. So it's in the best interest of the king and the empire for them not to live anymore. So if it pleases you, well, let me take care of them. And the king took his signet ring and said, go, do that. It pleases me for you to take care of these people. And so he took the signet ring. And he put it on Haman's hand. And Haman devised a plan that one year later, on the same day, all the Jews throughout the kingdom of the Persians, Medes and the Persians, would be slaughtered. They would be killed. What's going to happen? Where is God when something like this is happening? What is he doing? Does he know? Does he care? Is he somewhere else in the world? When his people are about to be put to death, and it's now the law that that's going to happen, what is he going to be doing? Mordecai heard this. Mordecai was mortified when he heard this. He literally dressed in sackcloth and ashes. A sackcloth is like burlap, and it showed a simple, broken, mourning person. We see this in prophets like Jeremiah or like Nehemiah when they saw the demise of their people, and they wept before the Lord, and they wept openly in others. If you see a person in sackcloth and ashes... They look really bad. And that's exactly what Esther saw when she saw Mordecai at the gate. She said, here, take some clothes, get dressed up. What's going on here? He goes, I will not. This is the time to stand up. This is the time to save our people. Esther said, do you realize that if I go before the king and I'm not invited, I'll be dead? Because that was the custom in the day. The king had this thing called the royal, the, the, the golden scepter. And he would hold it out. If he held it out, you could approach him. If he didn't hold it out, you couldn't approach him. And if you approached him, they would consider you trying to assassinate him. And they would lop your head off. You're done. Story over. Esther was afraid. And Mordecai appeared to her. And Mordecai said this. Mordecai said, tell this to Esther. Do not think of yourself Uh, That in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Boy, we need Mordecai's in this world, don't we? We need men who stand up and give Uh, encourage and and, and infuse courage to people around. If you're going to stand in a culture that consistently bends towards getting more respect or having more pleasure, we've got to have more Mordecais who can stand and call it and call us to be courageous. That's exactly what Mordecai did. And this is Esther's response. She said, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for 30 days, or for three days, excuse me, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. And so that's what they did. They all fasted. Because fasting was looking for God's will in their lives. They refrained from food so they could focus on the Lord and his plan. 
And she says this, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and look at this courage. And if I perish, I'll perish. So she appears before the king after fasting for three days. Now, I don't know what you would look like after you did not eat or drink for three days. But most people would say, if you want to make a good first impression, don't fast for three days and three nights. But she did. She was casting herself on the one who was going to take care of her. And that day she appeared before the king. And when he saw Queen Esther standing at the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out. Guess what? The golden scepter was extended to her. And she approached it and she touched the scepter and she said, I have a request. Think about this. What would you say if you got an audience with the king? King, my people are going to be drowned out. They're going to be killed. We got to do something now. This is a crisis. But she spoke his love language. She said, hey, I'm going to hold a party. And I want you to come. And to satisfy Haman's desire for respect, she said, and Haman, I'd like you to come to that party too. And Haman bowed up. We'll come to your party. We love to. I mean, we're going to have a good time tonight. So come on. It's all right. And so that's what they planned. And they came to their party. And, and, and the king said, wow, awesome party. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What he literally meant was 49% of his kingdom. Because we know that. We like to keep that 1%. It gives us control, right? So up to that 50% or 49%, I'll give you that, that kingdom. And she says, I have one more request. I'm going to have another party tomorrow night. And you go, wow, we'll come to that one too. Haman leaves that party and he's excited. And he goes by and he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't bow and tremble before him. And it totally sours him and he gets angry again. And he goes back to his house and he gathers his wife and his friends and his family. And he boasts about his wealth. He boasts about his son. He boasts about all of his honors that he had received in his job and in his position. And he shared all the promotions. And he says, and besides, I was invited to a very exclusive party by the queen. And I'm going. But then he says this, yet all of this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the gate, the king's gate. In other words, it so soured him, it so changed his perspective when that one person didn't give him respect. And so his family goes, hey, why don't we get rid of Mordecai? How about this? We'll build this really long pole with a really pointy end and we'll spear him through it and we'll hang him up in the courtyard of our house and we'll just say, this is what happens to the guy who does not respect Haman. And he thought, really cool idea. And so that's what he plans. What's going to happen? The story's gone from bad to worse. What is God going to do here? That night, the king couldn't sleep. Ah, Blessed insomnia. I don't see it as a blessing, but God was at work. What do you do when you can't sleep? Most of us get up and turn something on or open a book and try to read. They didn't have a television. Media at that time was something that was written. And it just so happened the king wanted to read a book. But when you're the king, you don't read the book. Someone reads it to you. So someone found a book. You'll never guess what the name of that book was. 
the book of the history of King's, King Xerxes' reign. And it just so happened that whoever was reading it opened to the chapter of one day at the king's gates, two people were plotting an assassination. That was the same day that Mordecai, who was at the king's gates, strategically positioned, gave the, gave the king inside information. He saved the king's life. Mordecai wins the day. And the king wakes up and goes, wait a minute. I never thanked Mordecai. Never thanked the guy. Just then, guess who walks by? Hey, man. Hey, man, what are you doing here? And he says, uh, the Xerxes asks Haman, hey, what should I do to a man that I really want to honor? And Haman thinks the king is speaking in code. He thinks he's talking about him. The king's going to honor him. Because when you're bent on respect, you think of yourself more highly than you ought. And so he goes, here's what you do. You put your robes on the dude. And you put him on your horse with your crown and you parade him through the city saying, this is the one who the king honors. And Xerxes goes, I love that idea. Tell you what, you do that to Mordecai. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, if you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out, as you have mentioned. Great idea. And he goes, no. Or something like that. Scripture doesn't record it. (laughs) And so there he is, Haman, with Mordecai, the man he wanted to kill, parading the king's robe and the king's horse and the king's scepter out in the public square. This is the one who the king wants to honor. And he goes home. And he tells this to his family. And his family said, I, I can't really interpret fully the Hebrew, but it really means literally, you're toast. You're toast. There's no hope. Just then the king's men show up. Hey, we got a party tonight. Come on. It's all right. And they put him on the train. They go to, not a train, but the people train, to the party. And they get to the party and everything's going well. And sure enough, at the end of the party, the king rises and says to Esther, Esther, great party. I'll give you up to half my throne. What would you like? And that's where Esther had everyone in the palm of her hand. And she says, king, there's something going on here. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And the king goes, what? Who? Where? Where? What are you talking about? He said, there's a decree that's going out. Who's responsible, the king says. And that's where she really lets all the colors out. And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And the king gets so ticked. He leaves the room in fury. Haman's grabbing on to Esther, pleading for his life, bowing to her, ironically. And the king comes back in. He sees Haman grabbing on to Esther and goes, will you assault the king in front of his eyes? What shall we do with him? Just then, cue servant who comes up with an idea. He says, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, well, it's standing at Haman's house. And it's 50 cubits at 75 feet high. We could do that with him. And King says, I like that idea. <laughs> so the story is, 
Haman has this pointy stick thrust into his body and lift up and he dies at his own courtyard. Thus is the man who tries to take God's people. And Mordecai, before Haman leaves the palace, by the way, he asks for the ring back. The signet ring comes off of Haman's hand. It's placed on Mordecai's hand. And look at this. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown. He was the first Kansas City Royals fan, by the way. (laughs) Do you see that? Blue and white, golden crown. God is a Royals fan. We just, it's in the scriptures. We see that. And a robe of of fine linen and purple. He's K-State fan also. Sorry, sorry. I said it, but everyone goes back to, but there's blue and white in the mix too, okay? So I think he cheers for football with K-State and basketball for KU. At any rate, I digress. And the people of Susa shouted and rejoiced. They reversed the decree that on that day, that day that Jews would be destroyed. And they called them to bear up arms and protect themselves. And Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, as vast as this kingdom was, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And if you're Jewish, this is the roots of the Feast of Purim, the festival of Purim. It's God taking care and saving his people. This is the rescue of God. By the way, as we look at this story of Esther, one of the great debates of scripture is whether or not Esther should have been in the Bible because there is no mention of the name God throughout the whole book. Search it. You won't find the name. Even though he was silent, he was very active. And it ought to remind us at those quiet, silent moments in our lives, when everything seems bad, when we wonder where God is, he is working. We can see it in hindsight. It may have been difficult for them to grasp at that time, but God was working at such a time as that to raise up people to work and to win and to get the last confrontation. He was confronting King Xerxes. The king of kings was confronting And reminding who was leading Mordecai to save his life. The king of kings was confronting Haman. And his glory was confronted, confronting his drive for pride and power and position. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And some will go at that moment. Yes! Yes! Jesus Christ is Lord. And others will go, oh, no. Jesus Christ is Lord. But everyone, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. And with Mordecai, God shows us he is just. He is the one who protects truth. He is the one who preserves dignity in his people. He is the one, uh, the Lord of compassion. And he has placed each of us in this world where we are right now. We might feel, feel rejected or broken, but we're here at such a time as this to work out his plan. It may not seem fair. Your life may not f- seem just. It may not make sense. But you are right in the middle where God wants you, at the center of his plan. Do not remain silent. Stand up, stand out, 
and make your life more about God than you do about pleasure or respect. Because it comes down to those three words. I've made the notes easy this week. Three words. Three words. Because it's the battle of what your life is going to be about. What do you want your life to be about? If it's pleasure, you will always be waiting for the next party. You will. Because it never meets the need of your soul. It never satisfied the true fulfillment of your heart. To desire the next party is to not be fulfilled. And you go, oh, okay, I can't, I don't party for six months and certainly not for seven days. I can't afford an open bar. What do you mean by that for me? The answer, let me just ask you this. What happens when someone says no to you? I want to go do this and they say no. Do you get angry? Do you get frustrated? Pleasure doesn't like no. Pleasure doesn't like not tonight. Pleasure likes your plan on your terms in your way. It always sacrifices the future for, for the, to scratch the itch in the present. Secondly, what happens when you don't want to do something that you know is right and know is best, but you don't want to do it? See, pleasure will say compromise. You don't have to follow that. God wants you to be happy. Don't worry about holiness. He wants you to be happy. And I've heard that excuse so much as a pastor. That's why I'm getting out of this marriage. God wants me to be happy. Well, sometimes staying in takes time and effort, and you don't want to. Love grows when you don't want to. Because love is the giving up of yourself to love someone else. It's not getting someone else to do what you want them to do. And then what happens when you have to? Our world hates have tos. They hate obligations. They love opportunities. And there is a certain freedom to opportunities. But you know what? When we love people and we love God, there are going to be obligations in our lives. That's just the right and the best thing to do. Pleasure cannot be our greatest passion. Secondly, respect. Haman represents that. And what do we see of Haman at the end of the story? Well, I mean, literally, the guy was impaled by his own insecurity. He was. And you go, oh, I don't wake up, and I didn't wake up today to eradicate a race from this world. And not many of us have, thankfully. But what happens when someone is better at you at something? Even in your area of expertise. Are you thankful for them? Do you praise them? Do you want the best of them? Do you think the best of them? Or do you go competitive and and rejoice when they fail? Do you prop yourself up by others' failures? That is a desire for respect. What happens when someone doesn't recognize you? You put all the work in. You stayed late. You put in the overtime, which you never got because your salary. And they come in, they do the minimal work, and they get the promotion. Just because they're better at relationships or people than you are. You're more, and they get that. And they're elevated. And you're, you stay the same. Do you want to take them down? That's your desire for respect. That's rearing its head in your life. What happens when someone's unfair to you, unjust to you? And no one pleads your cause. And you don't get resolution. Does that result in bitterness and anxiety and hurt? Do you go dark? See, that's your desire for respect. 
It can either be about pleasure, about respect, or people. In Mordecai, we get values. Values that are eternal. God, his word, and people. God, his word, and people. It was Mordecai who was a man of conviction. As a follower of God, he refused to bow to a man. And as he stood up, he stood out. And there were consequences involved with that. As a man of compassion, he was concerned for Esther. He didn't want to use and abuse her. He wanted to care for her and take care of her. He, with, with Xerxes, he had a concern for his safety and he called out the assassination plot. With his own people, he cried and he mourned for his own people. And he was a part of God's plan of salvation for them. A man of courage, he stood up to the queen, his cousin, and said, you have been placed for such a time as this. Stand up. Be a part of rescue and deliverance for your people. You see, what our lives are ultimately going to be about are either me, my pride, or my pleasure, or they're going to be about God, his word, and people. By the way, those are the three values of Fellowship Bible Church because they'll last forever. God, his word, and people. All three are eternal. All three are worth pouring your life into. All, <laughs> all three are worth you turning away from personal pleasure to make God your greatest delight. To turn away from your need and passion to get people to respect you, to love other people liking you versus loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with your mind. And people, living your life, praying for, being concerned, being compassionate towards people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to make you aware of one thing that we really are calling everyone into this fall that really aligns our lives to God, his word, and people. It's called Rooted. And uh, it's going to start this fall and in the middle of September, and it will end the middle of November. And I'm saying this to you in June because we believe this is the best experience that every adult here can grow in a relationship with God, his word, and people. And I'm saying this to you because I want you to set it as a priority. We're going to be going through a series on that through that time, but we're also calling you to be into a small group at that time. And I know you might be afraid of a small group, but they work through this. This is a really easy way to do that. And I want you to save the dates because fall is coming. We're in June and pretty soon kids activities and athletics and all those other things all those other things can come in and crowd out what's most important. And I want you to hold that as a priority because I think it will really be a blessing to you. Our lives, really, I think you're here. I really do. I really think you're here because you want to make your life about God, his word, and people. There's a lot of things to do with your weekend, especially on a Sunday morning. And I want to just tell you, I think that's why you're here. You do want to grow with God, his word, and people. It's going to require us to repent and turn away from our desire for pleasure, our infatuation with ourselves through getting more respect so that we can make it about God, someone greater than us, his word and people. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for guiding us to truth today. And Holy Spirit, now move us, move in us to be people who are about you and your word in the lives of others. And Lord, we want to make you greater. We want to make you greater in our lives, in our world, in our relationships, everywhere. And that requires us to step down from ourselves. So we just confess to you that we are people who love pleasure and respect, but we also have realized their demise and their destruction in our lives. And so we lift up Jesus to be the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.